Hi friends in English 210 and welcome to week five. This week I'm going to be taking you through feminism and this will actually be the last week that you will hear from me alone. Starting next week we will have, um, we'll have our guest instructors come in every week and present different criticisms to you. Next week we'll have Dr. Erin Angelo will be presenting Marxism and we'll just rotate on from there. Um, after our faculty instructors we will have um, our student instructors. So you guys will be presenting on um, the last what, four or five, four theories, and um, you'll be selecting the readings that we all re read as a class, and you'll be presenting the material, um, however you see fit. So again, this will be the last week you'll hear from just me, um, and I'm gonna take you through feminism. Um, always put feminism in the beginning. This is actually the first time I've taught feminism by myself. Um, usually we have Dr. Carol Cole-Merton, who was an English professor here for a long time. Um, she actually retired in, I want to say 2016, so she hasn't been around for a while. Um, but she is you know, of the generation who really... Um, came of age uh, during the feminist movement, the second wave feminist movement. And I think um, she has, she offers a really unique and interesting perspective on feminism. Um, being from a younger generation, I have my own perspective. Um, maybe not quite as um, sort of uh, extreme an experience as Dr. Cole Merton's. Um, but certainly in my life, I've, I've um, experienced varying, varying degrees of, of sexism, and particularly in the workplace. And so that's something I think I can speak to, and I think I can speak um, pretty well to feminist theory in general and what it's all about. So that's what I'm going to try to do right now. Um, so feminism is probably a theory, um, philosophy, a movement um, a movement in history, several different movements in history um, that you're probably very familiar with already. Um, but I wanted to take you through, as Lois Tyson does, the various um, you know, foundational tenets of, of feminist theory. And also just I, wanna, I want to reiterate and emphasize how I think feminism is as important a cultural force um, today as it was you know, in the 70s or 60s or 70s, um, I think it's needed now more than ever. And I'll remind you all of the Women's March um, in 2000, January, the first Women's March in January of 2016, which was the largest mass global protest ever um, in history, ever recorded. Um, so just just a, a gentle reminder that feminism hasn't gone away. It's not irrelevant. Um, I think it's more relevant than ever, as I said. Um, and you know, on a personal level, I, I have, as I say, have reckoned with um, various sexist practice, particularly in the workplace. Um, for years here at Hood College, I was paid about $12,000 more than 
uh, sorry, more, less, I wish, $12,000 more, $12,000 less than my uh, male counterparts um, at the same level um, who were actually hired after I was. So for about five, six years or so, I fought along with a lot of other women faculty members um, for equal pay as, as our male counterparts who were making more than we were at the same level or even at a lower level. In some cases, we're at a higher level and we're making less than male faculty members making more at a lower level, like at an assistant professor level. So once I hit, hit that associate level, which is where I am now, um, I stalled in my salary and I saw my male um, counterparts making more, you know, hitting the associate level and then making more. And I, another thing I learned was, and this, this is very common, it's not unique to Hood, um, everywhere, uh, men are able to negotiate higher salaries than women when they're first hired. So they enter the door um, at a higher rate than women. And, um, you know, even when women try to negotiate, their efforts fail. But when men try to negotiate, their efforts are rewarded. And they, as I say, walk in the door to a new job, making more than uh, the, the woman who was hired at the same time or before him. Um, so, yeah, women, uh, I looked this up, women currently uh, working full-time, or actually this is from 2018, the, the latest data I could find was from 2018, um, women working full-time make 80 cents, 86 cents, sorry, no, 82 cents for every dollar a man working full-time makes. So 82 cents to the dollar. Um, so, you know, those of you women who are going to be entering the workforce after college, this is something you're going to have to contend with. Um, and this is why feminism is important to you, but it's not just important to women. It's that's something that I really want to um, also reiterate and stress and emphasize. Feminism is for all of us. It is, it has become very much an inclusive, intersectional um, philosophy and movement that embraces, um, as we'll see, um, critical theory, uh, critical race theory, sorry, critical race theory, uh, queer theory. Um, Lois Tyson points out a lot of feminists are also deconstructionists and postmodernists. So there's a lot of overlap um, with the other th theories. And on a social level, um, of course, you know, feminist um, organizations work closely or very allied with um, racial um, organizations like Black, Black Lives Matter and, um, and other LGBTQ groups and, and organizations. So feminism, and another thing I want to say, final thing I want to say about this is that feminism is also important to men and those identifying as men. And Lois Tyson in her chapter on feminism um, offers some reasons as to why um, feminism um, is important to and tries to help um, the men and those identifying as men. So what I'd like to, for you to do um, is take a look at the Tyson chapter. And I'm going to read for you on page 92. She breaks down six of the sort of foundational tenets of feminism, a summary of feminist principles or premises, she calls them. 
Um, and I'm going to go through these with you. The first one, women are oppressed by patriarchy economically, politically, socially, and psychologically. Patriarchal ideology is the primary means by which they are kept so. Okay, that's, I think, pretty, pretty standard stuff, right? We know that. Number two, in every domain where patriarchy reigns, woman is other. She is objectified and marginalized, defined only by her difference from male norms and values, defined by what she allegedly lacks and that men allegedly have. Um, Freud, of course, as we'll see when we get to psychological theory, boils all this down to a penis, <laughs> whether or not you have a penis, right? Women have penis envy, he says. Uh, number three, all Western Anglo-European civilization is deeply rooted in patriarchal ideology. As we see, for example, in the numerous patriarchal women and female monsters of Greek and Roman literature and mythology. The patriarchal interpretation of the biblical Eve as the origin of sin and death in the world. The representation of woman as a non-rational creature by tradition, traditional Western philosophy. And the reliance on phallocentric thinking, thinking that is male-oriented in its vocabulary, rules of logic, and criteria for what is considered objective knowledge by educational, political, legal, and business institutions. As we saw earlier, even the development of the Western canon of great literature, including fairy tales, was a product of patriarchal ideology. Um, so this, this last point is relevant to us as um, English people, English majors or potential English majors, right? Um, and that's kind of where our focus will lie in terms of feminism as a whole philosophy, like feminism within the canon of, of literature, of Western literature, um, and how women have typically been excluded from that, you know. Um, the, the canon of literature, and by literature, literature with a capital L, right? Women have always written books, and women have actually been, throughout history, really popular um, authors, um, like top-selling, best-selling authors. Um, for example, in the 19th century, there was this whole genre of women's literature um, that was kind of like, uh, sort of like the equivalent of, um, like, you know, ro romances, modern romances today, like Danielle Steele or um, what's her name who lives down in Boonesboro, um, uh, Nora Roberts, right? Um so they were best-selling. There were best-selling authors. They've always been best-selling authors, but they've never been considered, quote unquote, canonized authors. Or it it took a lot of fighting, let's say, to get them to be considered canonized authors. Um, that's something I think we're all familiar with, or you're familiar with if you've taken any English courses. You know that. Um, I'll keep going. Number four. While biology determines our sex, male or female. Culture determines our gender, masculine or feminine. That is, for most English-speaking feminists, the word gender refers not to our anatomy, but to our behavior as socially programmed men and women. I behave like a woman, for example, submissively, not because it is natural for me to do so, but because I was taught to do so. In fact, all the traits we associate with masculine and feminine behavior are learned not inborn.
So um, that's pretty foundational. That's a pretty critical tenant, I think. And something that is still, I mean, that's very much um, an issue that's very much at the forefront of our society today. The difference between sex and gender and transgender rights um, and transphobia and people who don't understand the difference between sex and gender and just want to see everything in terms of, you know, sex and bio, what's biologically driven um, instead of socially driven. Okay, number five, all feminists, this is important, I want to emphasize this one, all feminist activity, including feminist theory and literary criticism, has its ultimate goal to change the world by promoting women's equality. That's it, right? In a nutshell, um, feminism is is around and is is a is a movement, is a philosophy, is a literary theory, because we're attempting to change, to affect change in the world. Um, it's an activist movement. It's a form of activism. Thus, all feminist activity can be seen as a form of activism. Oh, what, what do you know? Lois Tyson. Tyson and I are on the same page. Literally on the same page. Although the, world is, the word is usually applied to feminist activity that directly promotes social change through political activity, such as public demonstrations, boycotts, voter education and registration, the provision of hotlines for rape victims and shelters for abused women, and the like. Although frequently falsely portrayed in opposition to family values, feminists continue to lead the struggle for better family practices such as nutrition and health care for mothers and children, parental leave, and high-quality, affordable daycare. Yep, that pretty much sums it up. That's all, all of the things that we're, we're looking for and that we're hoping to change um, about our society. Finally, number six, gender issues play a part in every aspect of human production and experience, including the production and experience of literature, whether whether we are consciously aware of these, of these issues or not. So um, specifically when, when we're talking about literature, feminism um, is, again, I feel like it's one of the foundational theories right? If we are going to um, be reading and analyzing literature critically, then feminism, along with critical race theory and queer theory and the theories that typically um, represented a marginalized other, okay, a marginalized other. So I'm not talking about like deconstruction or structuralism, or like those theories are, are more sort of abstract and they're based in the abstract. Um, queer theory, feminist theory, critical race theory, these are based on people, on individuals, on communities, on societies. Societies made up of people, of human individuals, right? So literature is written by people. People are both men and women, right? black and white, right? So in some ways, we all if we're looking at literature, um, those theories, the theories that are based in um, our society, like uh, the, our, our individual, individuality, I should say, um, those are critical 
and foundational in the way we read and interpret literature. So I'm going to give you an example, or I've given you an example. You're going to read for this week um, a very famous essay by a feminist writer and critic and poet named Adrian Rich, um, who was incredibly influential to me personally. Um, and um, one cannot underestimate her influence within the world of feminist thought and theory and poetry in general. I mean, she was a great, a great poet as well. Um, an essayist. This is an essay, and this is one of her most famous essays. I think you can probably tell in this essay that this writer is a poet and not, um, well, she was a critic. She was a scholar. She was um, an essayist. But I think first and foremost, when I think Adrienne Rich, I think poet and um, poet and feminist, um, queer woman, um, Jewish. She identified as a queer Jewish writer. Um, and those were themes that came up in her work quite a bit. So um, this essay, Vesuvius at Home, uh, published in 1976, um, was um, and is still considered one of the most uh, famous, most influential essays on Dickinson from the 20th century. And um, I think I read this first, well, I've read this um, at several points throughout my life, and now I read it almost every year because I assign it all the time. But I also find every time I read it, it's, I, again, I think of reader response criticism and how um, every time you read a text, every time you reread a text, you have a kind of new experience of it. And I feel like this is one of those essays, every single time I read it, it's like I get excited again, or I, I feel that light bulb go off, or that spark, or whatever, um, that flash of inspiration. Like, I find this to be a really inspiring essay, and it does it to me every single time I read it. I, I'm, it's like one of the few pieces of literature that's not a poem, I should say, because poems do that to me frequently. Um, but this is one of the few works of prose, like every single time I read it. I'm, I'm, once again, I feel like the top of my head has just been taken off, to quote Emily Dickinson. She says that's how she knows it's a poem, when she feels the top of her head has been taken off. So, as you know, I'm also teaching a course in Whitman and Dickinson, so I've assigned this, this essay also in the Dickinson course, so we've read it there as well. Um, but she talks about Emily Dickinson uh, in feminist terms. Um, and she talks about one particular poem. She talks about a lot of poems in this essay. But she looks at one in particular, and she singles one out. And uh, it's on page 15 of the PDF. Um, and I think, actually, what I'm going to do is I'll read the poem first. And then she's got it all here, right? Yeah. I think I have this one memorized. I should be able to do this one from memory. But I'll, I'll read it, and then I'll read um, what Dickinson, I'm sorry, what Rich says about it. This is um, poem number, I think it's number 479 is the number. Um, she wrote close to 1,800 poems, so she didn't title them, so we used numbers for them. Um, I think it's number 479. My life had stood a loaded gun in corners till a day. 
the owner passed, identified, and carried me away. And now we roam in sovereign woods, and now we hunt the doe. And every time I speak for him, the mountains straight reply. And do I smile such cordial light upon the valley glow? It is as a Vesuvian face had let its pleasure through. And when at night our good day done, I guard my master's head. Tis better than the eider duck's deep pillow to have shared. To foe of his, I'm deadly foe, none stir the second time. On whom I lay a yellow eye or an emphatic thumb. Though I than he may longer live, he longer must than I. For I have but the power to kill without the power to die. Okay, there you go. Um, a very famous poem by Emily Dickinson, one that um, scholars have written a lot about. Um, and I will read to you here what uh, Adrian Rich says about this particular poem. She says, there is one poem, sorry, this is on the very bottom of page 15 of the PDF. There is one poem Actually, I don't know if this is a PDF. I think this comes from Parnassus Review. This comes from the original journal. There is one poem which is the real online begetter of my thoughts here about Dickinson. A poem I've mused over, repeated to myself, taken into myself over many years. I think it is a poem about possession by the daemon, about the dangers and risks of such possession if you were a woman about the knowledge that power in a woman can seem destructive, and you cannot live without the daemon once it has possessed you. The archetype of the daemon as masculine is beginning to change, but it has been real for women up until now. But this woman poet also perceives herself as a lethal weapon. And then she quotes the poem. And she, then she goes on to say, here this poet sees herself as split, not between anything so simple as masculine and feminine identity, but, but between the hunter, admittedly masculine, but also a human person, an active, willing being, and the gun, an object condemned to remain inactive until the hunter, the owner, takes possession of it. The gun contains an energy capable of rousing echoes in the mountains and lighting up the valleys. It is also deadly, Vesuvian. It is also the owner's defender against the foe. It is the gun, furthermore, who speaks for him. If there is female consciousness in this poem, it is buried deeper than the images. It exists in the ambivalence toward power, which is extreme. Active willing and creation in women are forms of aggression. And aggression is both the power to kill and punishable by death. The union of gun with hunter embodies the danger of identifying and taking hold of her forces, not least in that in doing so, she risks defining herself and being defined as aggressive, as unwomanly and as potentially lethal. 
That which she experiences in herself as energy and potency can also be experienced as pure destruction. The final stanza, with its precarious balance of phrasing, seems a desperate attempt to resolve the ambivalence. But I think it is no resolution, only a further extension of ambivalence. The poet experiences herself as a loaded gun, imperious energy. Yet without the owner, the possessor, she is merely lethal. Should that possession abandon her, but the thought is unthinkable. He longer must than I. The pronoun is masculine. The antecedent is what Keats called the genius of poetry. So she goes on to say at the very end, she says, I don't, I'm not trying to explain the whole poem here, but I'm just trying to make a point. And she says, but I think that for us at this time, it is a central poem in understanding Emily Dickinson and ourselves and the condition of the artist, particularly in the 19th century. Um, so basically, she's saying here, you know, to, to be writing these kinds of poems at the time that she was writing them, in the 1850s, 1860s, um, that was, that's dangerous. The kinds of poems that she, she was writing the poems she was writing were dangerous. Um, and you can see that, I think, in, in this poem, in this particular poem. Um, the poet is trying to, um, in some ways, the poem is like an ars poetica, um, a poem about poetry or a poem about um, the creative power of the poet. And here, Dickinson is equating that poetic power, um, Adrian Rich calls it a daemon, a daemon or a demon, um, like demonic possession. Um, and it's this, it's a really ancient idea. Um, but throughout history, men have always, male writers have invoked the female muse, right? As like the spirit of creation that comes to them and they couple with the muse and the, 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 um, poem or the literary work is like the creation, you know, the, um, the coupling, the, the product of the coupling between the author, the male author and the female muse. But here, what, what Rich is arguing is that from, um, for a, for a 19th century woman writer and perhaps even a writer writing today. I mean, I think this can be extended, um, to today and, and think of some women writers who are, um, or women artists, um, who are, um, considered in some way dangerous. Um, I mean, you know, I'm thinking of, or, or, uh, incapable of handling their own power. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. Um, I don't know if you guys have seen it, but the, you're going to laugh, the recent uh, documentary about Britney Spears. Um, you know, I mean, that, that kind of fits, right? It fits here. This idea that um, she got so big and so popular and like so massive that she was incapable, as a woman, she was incapable of like controlling it like this massive empire that she created and she was ultimately incapable of controlling herself. And so she needs the father, right? The patriarchy to come in and manage it for her. 
Um, I mean, it's not that far a stretch to see where we, how we get from there, from Emily Dickinson to there, right? Um, Dickinson was in a sort of privileged position, though, in that she was allowed to do this. I mean, she was allowed to do this. She was allowed to, like, not marry and to just kind of live at home and sit in her bedroom and write her wacky poems. And everybody's like, okay, Emily, you know, like everybody knew that she was just the woman who was sitting up there writing her wacky poems and baked really good bread. Um, that won contests. I mean, that was pretty much her legacy. Um, at the time, she wasn't really known for her poems. She was known for her baking. Um, so yeah, the idea, the, the idea of the woman's, um, what Adrian Rich is arguing here is that for the 19th century woman writer, um, her relationship to her muse, her creative power has been traditionally gendered as male. Okay. So again, in this poem, um, Dickinson, the eye of the poem is the gun. This is like a persona poem in the voice of a gun. So Dickinson is the gun and the owner, the quote unquote master, um, the man, the male, the husband, the father, the patriarchy, you know, fill in the blank, right? Um, is controlling her, but she's the deadly force, right? It's not, it's this whole idea, it's guns don't kill people, people kill people. Well, people don't kill people without guns, right? You can't, I mean, you can, but you can kill a lot faster and more efficiently and a lot more um, with a gun, right? So it's an interesting poem and it's got a kind of um, riddle going on at the end that, you know, for a um, hundred years people have, have been, or more, people have been trying to uh, solve. Um, it's definitely a, a powerful poem and um, as, as so I just learned um, that if you go longer than 30 minutes, uh, uh, Anchor, which is the website I'm using to create this podcast, will just cut you off. <laughs> so apparently they know that nobody will keep listening to a podcast that goes over 30 minutes. Um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop. I was actually pretty much finished. That was it. That's really all I had to say um, about uh, Dickinson, this poem, and Adrian Rich. Um, hopefully you enjoyed the reading for this week. Um, and again, this will be the last time you'll hear from me, um, for a while you'll be hearing from Dr. Aaron and well, you'll hear from me. I'll be putting everything together, but the material will all come from, um, our faculty, um, guest instructors. And, um, as always, I'm here to answer any questions. So let me know. Um, I'll talk to you soon. Thanks. And see you next week. Talk to you next week. Thank you.